Warning, this episode of The Saucer Life includes nothing explicit or inappropriate, but does contain mild romance which may induce blushing in those of a tender disposition. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no redactions. This is Encounter 202, The Saucer Love Life. It's back to the contactees today, and in keeping with our mission of presenting less well-known stories, we're going to be exploring the case of South Africa's Elizabeth Clarer. Like most contactees from the 1950s and 1960s, Clarer's story has strong overtones of concern for the present and future of humanity. Clara's concerns, however, are a bit different than those of a George Adamski or a Truman Bethram. They reflect the cultural and social concerns of the mid to late 20th century from a non-American perspective, and also include a personal relationship with a space being that is romantic to a degree that makes Truman Bethram's crush on Aura Reigns look like two people having a casual conversation at a mall food court. So let's go back to the 50s and let's go back to South Africa. Elizabeth Clarer's extraterrestrial contact experience took place in 1956 in South Africa in the foothills of the Drakensberg Mountains and was first reported in the December 1956 issue of Flying Saucer Review. Her encounters began with a very close-range sighting of a flying saucer, which was hovering a few feet above the ground. The craft was so close to me I could see clearly the face of the pilot through the porthole. Yet through uncertainty and fright, I instinctively stepped back and recoiled from the strangeness of it all. But my gaze remained fixed in a fascinated stare upon the face of the pilot, the most handsome man I have ever seen. He was blonde. His eyes gave me the impression at that distance of being light gray. He smiled at me to reassure, but I backed away. Okay, set aside for the moment that she could see the color of his eyes through the flying saucer porthole, that might be the most believable part of this story as we go on. In the future, uh, we would actually see more women who claimed to be contactees or have contact experiences, but Clara is one of the first. And perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that the reaction to Clara and her treatment um, or how her treatment was anticipated to be in the flying saucer press is a bit different than we might find from men who experienced similar weird occurrences. The article in Flying Saucer Review goes to a man named Edgar Sievers, who wrote a book on South African UFOs that, not coincidentally, came out around the same time as this story of a South African contact case. And they, um, they go to him for some background on Clara, and he sort of serves as her representative in this case, and he, uh, he vouches for her sanity. She is a gifted pianist and music teacher, with studies accomplished in Italy and England, and with a wide range of intellectual interests ranging from history to astronomy. An enthusiastic traveler, a lover of nature in general, and of horses in particular. Attractive Elizabeth Clare has both her feet on the ground, no less than any woman who has to look after her family. Modern readers might wonder what the fact that Clare is apparently attractive has to do with her credibility. They might also wonder at the fact that, as far as I can recall, attractiveness wasn't a factor in judging the claims of male contactees. 
Nobody said about Truman Bethram. Well, you know what? He has sort of a, a rugged everyman look to him that's, that's really quite fetching. He's probably telling the truth about this. You don't see that with men. Another interesting touch here is that Seavers explains Clara's groundedness, as it were, as being typical of any woman who's caring for a family. So single and or childless women presumably have only one, not both feet on the ground. And then the author of this Flying Saucer review article quotes Seavers at length on uh, Georgia Damsky's encounters. In an unbroken period of almost four years in which Adamski has been talking to all who are ready to listen with discerning ear and attentive mind, he has not hidden himself, as an imposter would have done, nor faded from public memory, as could have been expected of a hoaxer duly found out. His words have not only been ringing true, they necessarily were and are the truth, because only truth could have withstood such a barrage of suspicion Scorn, mockery, disbelief, ridicule, and slander from every corner of the world converging on Mount Palomar in print, sound waves, and by mind force. Mind force. Outstanding. Actually, I had to re-record that a couple times because whenever I got to mind force, I started giggling. As a bit of an aside, uh, the subsequent history of flying saucer culture would actually demonstrate that proven frauds and hoaxers have little trouble maintaining an audience year after year, decade after decade. Anyway, back to Clara. Why spend all that time sticking up for a Damsky? Why on earth spend a good couple paragraphs in this article about Elizabeth Clara talking about the truth of a Damsky's claims? Probably because Clara's story is about to take a sharp turn into contacteeville. While Elizabeth Clare has mustered the courage to come forward and to henceforth stand this very same test of acid publicity, there are many who know her personally and who will vouchsafe her sincerity, as well as her truthfulness and her integrity. Like Adamski, she will likewise stand and fall with the veracity of her claims and the absolute truth in her spoken word. Uh-oh, we're getting ready for a contactee story. So, what's her story? Well, there's some reasons why Seavers goes to lengths to defend Adamski uh, as sort of a preface to this, because we're going to see a lot of similarities and some differences, but mostly a lot of similarities. On reaching the top of the southern slope, I saw the scout ship resting on the ground near the eastern slope of the dip. The rising sun had not topped the slope, so the craft was in the shadow. My immediate reaction was not to hesitate as I had done the first time, but to run as fast as I could. I felt as if I had wings to my feet, down that very rough slope, straight to the tall, blond man standing near the craft. It was the most natural thing for me to do, because I felt I had known him all my life. I stretched out my hands to him, and he took them, saying, You were not afraid this time. He helped me step into the craft, and he gently sat me down on the soft circular bench where I was able to regain my breath. What helped me more than anything was the wonderful, invigorating freshness of the air in the cabin. An awful doubt assailed me when I saw the other pilot sitting at the controls. He was dark and stocky, so without thinking I asked the tall spaceman, Oh, you're not a Russian, are you? He smiled and answered, I am not from any place on this planet that you call Earth. I am from Venus. The tall Venusian, who spoke perfect English, told me how for a limited period he had lived and studied on Earth, traveling to various cities to see for himself how mankind lived and behaved. 
He was sad to see the mode of existence, precarious and always with the threat of war. Aggressive, dominating nations would continue to rise to power, nations that are still uncivilized. The power of brute force was still rampant in the world. That was the tragedy, he told me. Therefore, how can the space people land among us? There was plenty of room to walk around in the cabin, but my whole attention was held by the personality of the spaceman. We talked about music, real and beautiful music, not about the primitive jungle noise that is so popular throughout the world. So there's a lot here that's similar to Adamski's accounts, a tall blonde man standing beside a scout ship waiting for somebody to show up, for example. But there's some more personal touches as well. Uh, Clara's musical training that Seavers mentioned in his, uh, his endorsement of her allows her to exhibit a fair bit of snobbery about the, quote, jungle noise the modern world enjoys. Um, her example of the racially tinged phrase jungle music is actually a bit of foreshadowing of her later writing about her alien experiences, as we're going to see. And so after this story appeared, uh, Clara mostly fades from prominence for a while. And in the late 1970s, she would begin speaking to groups about her experiences and eventually would write an autobiography, which expanded upon her contact experience. Beyond the Light Barrier, the autobiography of Elizabeth Clare, was published in 1980. In this expanded narrative, the space brother who visits her has a name, and he is from a planet which circles the star Proxima, rather than hailing from nearby Venus. The planet's named as Meton. Beyond the Light Barrier is firmly entrenched in the political and social context of South Africa in the 1970s, and examines the times through a different prism than American contactee stories. Clara's story describes an alien contact experience set in the context of the post-colonial world and the decline of Britain as a major power, in addition to the context of sort of the perennial impending American-Soviet nuclear annihilation threat. Concerns about war, peace, defense, and race all play a role in the story, sitting side by side with her assertion of the reality of alien visitors and their impact on her life. As the subtitle suggests, this is an autobiography, going back to Clara's 1910 birth and subsequent childhood in South Africa. If the reader and listener finds some of her stories and explanations perplexing, there's a reason which Clara explains in a note preceding the main text. This book is about time on the cosmic level, with new data not yet registered on scientific instruments. The reader needs to follow the cosmic layout of my writing very closely to understand the vast implications involved. Otherwise, the cosmic scale of this book will be lost and misunderstood by many whose intelligence cannot be expanded in this epoch of time to a conscious awareness of our cosmic connections. So, if you and I are confused by the story, it's because we're just no good at following its cosmic layout and we don't have the intelligence to comprehend what she is laying down for us. Clara's story often references political and racial issues, and often these political and racial concerns are done in a brief, almost throwaway manner. Clara claims that she wrote the book to explain the cosmic connections revealed to her by extraterrestrials. What she doesn't seem to realize is that she's writing a book not just about alien visitation, but about racial strife, and about the role of Britain in a post-imperialist world. She doesn't realize that's what she's doing, probably, but that's what she's doing. Clara would claim to have experienced visitations from the beginning of her life, recounting an incident when, as a child, she witnessed a spaceship protect her family and, she assumes, the entire Earth from a stray asteroid. 
Years later, she and her husband are flying a small aircraft when they encounter a blue-white sphere, which Claire, through what she calls women's intuition, knows to be otherworldly. After being debriefed by military officials, Claire and her husband, who was an Air Force officer, are ordered to go to Britain, to the um, Experimental Flight Center of the de Havilland Aircraft Corporation. At de Havilland, the Clares see a glimpse of the British future. She describes a new nuclear-capable bomber that would protect Britain against, quote, any of the aggressive invaders who seem to get more and more ruthless in their quest for power and world domination and who were forever devising more horrible and diabolical weapons of destruction, end quote. She goes on to assert that, quote, to destroy one's fellow creatures and one's planet is a reflection of mass insanity. So there's a weird sort of tension here between the cliched contacty pacifism and a, a sort of muscular assertion of Britain's need for protection in a hostile world. She sees the new nuclear-capable bomber not as an expression of this mass insanity, but as a necessary evil for Britain to defend itself against other nations' mass insanity. Britain's just kind of a victim here. Everybody else is, uh, they're the crazy ones. The thing is, she says, war is actually on the way. Unfortunately, even with the nuclear bomber, Britain ain't ready for it. I looked at the lily pond my grandmother had made out of a bomb crater many years ago when the beautiful mansion was spared from destruction and the evil thoughts of those intent upon their many tribal wars. Walking on beside the ancient creepered walls of my ancestral home, I resolved to help protect a freedom inherited through the centuries as only an island nation can know. The freedom of the seas, the freedom of the skies, the freedom of space. Freedom is the very stuff of life, and without it, one ceases to live. Yet I realized that most people were unaware of the wider scene of faraway places. They could not connect the whole or comprehend how it would affect them all with the crushing impact in years to come. They had rallied around in panic to stem the flow of Hitler's hordes, but there was no vision to gauge the blow to England's pride that was now being forged. The veil of silence is so cunningly drawn over the perception of man that he cannot see the plan to enslave him with wars and rumors of still more wars to come. Wars of racial strife, black against white, in a bid to take over the planet. This section, when I first read it years ago, struck me sharply. Clara doesn't explain who is drawing this veil of silence or who's attempting to take over the planet. And her strong assertion that a race war is in humanity's future is unusual among contactees of the time and one of the aspects of Beyond the Light Barrier which marks it out as being a work of the late 70s and not the 1950s or 60s. The narrative, though set in the 50s, makes no explicit mention of the Cold War conflict between NATO and the Soviet bloc. The late 70s, however, was the tail end of an era of detente between the two superpowers. Other concerns were closer to the surface in Clara's mind, and as a native of South Africa, race was an unsurprising component. Okay, history time. Real history, not flying saucer history. Although, as you should know by now, the two are closely connected. As decolonization swept across Africa after World War II, South Africa was distinct from other colonial states. Since 1910, South Africa had been a dominion of the British Empire rather than just a mere colony, and since 1931 had had a kind of de facto independence. South Africa possessed a cultural connection to the British Empire, while at the same time it had a degree of political autonomy that other colonies did not possess, including a government 
which had the ability to pass laws. Laws such as the Native Lands Act, establishing legally defined racial segregation throughout the country. When white South African leaders pushed for further independence in the 1950s and 1960s, culminating in the Declaration of the Republic of South Africa in 1961, it wasn't a native African leadership which demanded autonomy, as in, for example, Kenya, but rather the descendants of transplanted Europeans. Throughout the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, in the face of international, economic, and diplomatic pressure, as well as internal violence, South Africa continued its policies of racial apartheid. It is, therefore, unsurprising that issues of racial, racial violence would surface in Clarer's writings. Back in Britain, the couple had met with a figure referred to only as the chief. The chief reveals that, quote, our planet is under close surveillance by an alien but highly advanced civilization. He then asks Clarer to contact the visitors using ESP, which, for some reason, they know she has. This contact may provide a way for humanity and its people to finally live in harmony. So, Elizabeth is not just going to be a contactee. She's also an agent of the state employed in an active effort to contact alien entities. Clara returns home to South Africa and attempts to contact the aliens. Conceptions and misconceptions of race will surface again. Throughout the text, and we'll see more examples of this, Clara relates her conversations with the native Zulu people who lived near her home. As Clara wanders the countryside waiting for the ship containing the man she knows through telepathy to be named Akon, she hears the Zulu people speaking to her. They told of the great wagon in the sky and the fiery visitors from the heaven country. The golden hair of your head will bring the Abalungu from the sky, they called across the valleys as I listened to their descriptive language, understanding it as well as my own. You are one who brings together, princess. The heaven dwellers will come and take you away from us. So, at least one of the reasons that the extraterrestrial visitors seek Elizabeth is because of her golden hair. This passage is emblematic, in a way, of how Claire depicts the native African population in her area in South Africa. They're an exotic other. They're connected to the land and to the space visitors. But despite this connection, they aren't actually going to meet the visitors. That's a privilege reserved to Elizabeth, the golden-haired one. So Clara's story manages to position the Zulu as being especially connected to the space people. But at the same time, she's able to place herself at a higher level than that. In a way, this serves to sort of recast the racial distinctions present in South Africa within a context that is outside of the political and colonial past into one that is at a higher level than terrestrial concerns. Clara ensures that she is exalted above the non-whites, maintaining the traditional racial hierarchy, but she's able to imply that this racial hierarchy is not just a South African thing. It's not even an Earth thing. It's a space thing. Akon the Spaceman, who eventually shows up, she eventually meets him, is also presented with typically Caucasian features and golden hair, like Claire's. So when Elizabeth finally meets Akon, he's going to tell her all about himself and his planet Maton. And there are some romantic overtones to their first encounter that aren't contained in the initial 1956 account from Flying Saucer Review. My beloved, there is no need for you to say anything. I know everything. I have observed you before. 
It is a knowledge and understanding that we share, and you now belong to me. It was only necessary for me to wait until you had grown up in this knowledge and understanding. To be one of us, you must think as we do. I observed you first when you were a child, with your sister in the garden of your home in the valley adjoining the hill. At other times, I have watched you growing up, flying through the skies of earth, looking for me, and I watched while the lightning high in the sky wrapped you with its purifying flame to make you mine. That sounds really creepy, doesn't it? I mean, Clara's story was not the only contactee story to have this element of we have known you since you were born or since before you were born and we've waited for the right time to contact you. That shows up quite a bit. But this, I mean, yikes. It sounds like Akon was sort of watching Elizabeth from his black van across the street until she turned 18 or something. Similarly creepy is the degree of possessiveness and the demand that Elizabeth conform to whatever Akon and his people want. You belong to me, the purifying flame making you mine, that sort of language. Um, this is, this is, there's a bit of dominance over her that is uh, not, not entirely comfortable in some ways. So, the romance between Elizabeth and Akon is intensely physical, although there are some spiritual aspects that are significant, but it's pretty physical. And I had to bring in a guest artiste for this one because I couldn't stop blushing or giggling while doing these lines. So here we go. He kissed me with a long and lingering kiss on the lips. Picking me up in his arms, he carried me to the silken platform. Its firm softness supported our bodies with luxurious comfort as I gave myself to the man from outer space. As our bodies became one, the fusion of the electric essence of life was attained, and the ensuing ecstasy and balance of electrical forces transcended all things experienced in life. How beautiful is nature's plan to mate in love and harmony, the joy of the soul, spirit, and body, the three-in-one transcended into timelessness. We lived for one another in the consummation of the soul within the rapturous ecstasy of fulfilled love. The depth of the connection between the two is important, since Akon's goal is to get Elizabeth pregnant and bear a child. And according to Akon, men from his world rarely mated with earth women. Significantly, there's no mention of women from Miton ever mating with earth men. Earth women, such as Elizabeth, seem to serve mostly as breeding stock for the men of Miton. The primary purpose of this mating seems to be breeding, although there's clearly love and affection between Akon and Elizabeth. So why is this breeding necessary? Again, race arises in Clara's narrative as a significant factor in the relationships between the people of Earth and Maton. Akon explains the entire process to Elizabeth. We maintain harmonious contact with other races on other planets, but close contact or miscegenation is unknown among our race beyond this solar system. This is why only a few from beyond this solar system are chosen for breeding purposes to infuse new blood into our ancient race. We only select those few whom we know to be reborn from the mother planet, Venus. You, my beloved, have this race memory. Your ancient lineage goes back many thousands of years in Earth time. We have traced your ancestry, and all this was arranged when you were born. 
This idea that some of the peoples of Earth have been sort of seeded or are the descendants of space people who live somewhere else is an idea that's persisted into some modern strands of UFO and flying saucer and extraterrestrial uh, belief. There are those who think that people of one race originated on one planet and people of another race or ethnicity originated on another planet. And so racial conflict is really part of this eternal struggle between the planet people of planet one and planet two. So the Metons originated in the solar system, first living on Venus, then Earth. Um, this might be a way to connect uh, to connect this later retelling of her contact tale to her earlier 1956 account where she said that the guy she met was from Venus, or it's a way to connect it to the broader sort of universe of contactee stories. But for whatever reason, Meton is where Akon lives now, but originally they were from Venus, then they lived on Earth. So when they moved on from Earth, some of their people were left behind, but became, over the eons, quote, thoughtless and destructive. As Elizabeth was one of the apparently few Earth women who was recognizable as being from the same stock as, as the Meton people, one might assume that her blonde and Caucasian features indicated not just a connection with the alien visitors, but a tendency away of, from being the thoughtless and destructive category of humans. An obvious corollary here is that non-Caucasians are responsible for the degeneration of the human species and the degradation of the Earth, according to Akon and, and his people. But it's unclear exactly what she means by this, and it's kind of unclear from the book exactly which groups were left in which place. It gets a little muddled. I suppose that's because I can't quite make out the cosmic layout and nature of her writing because I don't have that level of intelligence. As we get further into her autobiography, the sort of racialist nature of her narrative uh, continues to develop. And um, once again, the way that the Zulu people, uh, as she describes them, are betrayed is, is sort of the key to this. Throughout the earthbound portions of Beyond the Light Barrier, Clara presents the Zulu people she encounters as sort of an, an exotic and backward other, their child life. They cling to what she calls their tribal beliefs. And while those with whom she interacts are, are mainly farmers and servants, while they've seen the flying saucers of Akon and his people, they don't comprehend the experience in the same way Clara, her family, and other Caucasian characters do. Clara's discussion of the return from her visit with Akon is very representative of the way she describes the native people of, of the region. As she exits the spacecraft, uh, she notices a, a group of young Zulu boys who are present. They broke cover out of the long grass, scattering like a covey of quail. I called to them in Zulu, telling them not to be afraid of the great wagon in the sky. No explanation could still the overpowering superstitious fear of anything so fantastic. The next morning, Elizabeth is served tea by her Zulu maid and recalls the conversation she had with her. We have seen the magic wagon in the sky. We ran to hide in a deep ravine, shielding our eyes from the brightness like the lightning. Our fathers told of such things coming out of the sky, and the sky doctor says he has seen them many times and has talked to them. 
So Clara describes the boys who saw the spacecraft in an animal-like way. They scattered like a covey of quail. They didn't just run away like kids might do in front of a spaceship. The maid speaks as though she's a character from some kind of Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, being confronted with a steam locomotive or, or some kind of weird European technology. Though it's written in the late 70s and alleged to take place in the 50s, the attitudes toward the natives of South Africa really are represented as being more in line with something from the 1890s or the Edwardian era, um, something from this, from the more, you know, heightened part of the age of imperialism. So the maid and the young boys in the field are, to Clara's mind and in her, in her depiction, unable to cope with the reality of Akon and his people like she's able to cope with them. And while she doesn't explicitly say this inability to understand is a product of race, none of the white people with whom she's acquainted has any trouble understanding the basics of what she experienced with Akon and his people. In a lot of ways, Clara presents the Zulu people in her book as being much more alien and much more exotic than the actual space visitors from another planet. And of course, the reason for that is the space visitors are the descendants and sort of the ancestors, descendants and ancestors and, and sort of cosmic cousins of humans, at least of white humans. Eventually, Elizabeth bears Akon's child, uh, a boy who will be named Ailing. His birth caused Clara no pain. She went through the entire pregnancy process in only a few months, and she reported that as a baby, he didn't cry or fuss like Earth children. As Akon promised, uh, he took the child away uh, to raise him in the ways of Miton. Elizabeth would return to South Africa with Akon's promise that he would return for her. He never did. Clara clearly has some concerns for the future. In the final paragraph of her autobiography, she wonders if Earth's people will survive. And what of the planet Earth? Can its teeming billions survive in such a small and vulnerable world? Can their mass leveling and conformity produce leaders to solve the many problems they will face within the next five years so that they might survive their time and live into ours and join our community of galactic civilizations? This kind of odd concern about leveling of society is uh, is kind of in, in you know it follows along with our characterization of Akon's commanding presence being the result of good breeding rather than learned skill or anything like that. There's a very aristocratic thread running through most of Clara's narrative, and the trend at the time, a rapidly democratizing world, kind of ran counter to that view. That was the threat, really, more than nuclear war, because if there was war, if there was conflict. Were the right sort of people really in charge? If we allow just anybody to get elected to office, if society is leveled and everybody's sort of at the same status, then can humanity survive? And this concern over the future sort of reflects her concerns about South Africa in the 1970s, really. It was a deeply unsettled place. There was labor violence. There were student uprisings. There was the continuing struggle over apartheid, including the increasingly international di diplomatic and economic isolation of the white South African regime. All of this indicated that the privileged countryside upbringing Clara experienced as a white South African would soon be a thing of the past, a relic of the colonialist mindset that had imposed apartheid on South Africa in the first place. Clara died in 1994, leaving a second book unfinished and still waiting for Akon. 
Elizabeth Clara's saucer life reflected her desire for a simpler time, a time when supposed good breeding and blonde hair meant something in South Africa, and not just on the planet Meton. I strongly recommend reading Clara's own book, Beyond the Light Barrier, which has been reprinted recently and is on the market. You can get it at Amazon. It includes an interesting epilogue by her son David, in which he attempts to reconcile the very New Age-oriented philosophy presented in the book with his own Christian beliefs. He also addresses whether or not he actually believes his mother's story. He hedges a little bit, but does admit that he does not remember the things that his mother claims took place when he was present. He does, however, believe that many of the concerns his mother expressed in the book about love among humanity for each other, care for the environment, and so on, that these were sincere beliefs. It's an interesting book, and it's clearly a different take on the traditional contactee story than many of the others we see in the 1950s and 60s. And hopefully, without sounding too self-promoting, I can also recommend my book on contactees, Extraterrestrials, and the American Zeitgeist. Both are linked to in the show notes on the website. In the meantime, thanks for listening. You can follow along at saucerlife.com. Yes, finally, a real domain name. And on Twitter at saucerlife. Or you can email us at thesaucerlife, all one word, at gmail.com. If you could rate or review The Saucer Life on iTunes, Google Play, anywhere else, that'd be great. Sharing and retweeting links to the show are also much appreciated. Thank you especially this week to TheAnomalist.com for plugging our episode a few uh, weeks back on Truman Bethram. Encounter 202 featured Roberta Evangeline Straith as the voice of Elizabeth Clarer for just that one part and is a Chizo Media production. And till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you.